Welcome to the Awakening Church podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. As I said, we're, we're marching through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're closing up this series, Salt and Light, focusing on the metaphors Jesus gave us. And if you've been a close Bible reader through our time, you'll actually notice we've skipped two verses in the Sermon on the Mount, and that was intentional, only to bring us back this week to set the context. Week one, I talked about the metaphor of salt. Week two, Christina last week did an amazing sermon on the metaphor of light. Well, where do we have to go? There's just two metaphors. It's a three-week series. I want to pull back. I want to set the context for this verse that I think a lot of Bible readers and Christians and even non-Christians miss in this metaphor because we miss the context. Look at Matthew 5, where this verse is. Look at verse 10. Blessed are, you, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We covered that verse a month ago when we were talking about the Beatitudes. We were talking about what does God bless? What does God say? This is the flourishing life. But 11 and 12, we missed. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you, and remember that word could be flourishing, or you're headed in the right direction. Are you when others revile you or insult you or mock you and persecute you and utter utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account? Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. He just goes right into it. You're the salt of the earth. But if if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He skipped down to verse 14. You are the light of the world. We talked about this last week. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's leave that up on the screen for a little bit. Do you see, in our Bibles, there's a clean division between blessed are those who are persecuted when you're mocked and reviled because you're, with, you're just like the prophets. There's a division between that and the salt and light passage. Pastors like me, we like to divide up Bible very clearly and cleanly. We say, this is over here and this is over here. But Jesus, when he was teaching this, would have given this as one thought. He would have given this as one utterance and rhetoric. It would have been a flow in his oration where he would have just said, blessed are you when people revile you, rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven because you are just like those prophets because you're the salt of the earth. It would have been more like that than a cleanly divided sermon series as we've done here. And so today I want to pull back and say, what does this mean? How do these things relate to be salt of the earth is actually to see the context a little bit, is to see that salt of the earth will mean a kind of rejection, perhaps? The context is everything. Why is this important? Because here, I think a lot of Christians and non-Christians, particularly in 2019, are scared to talk about what they believe in. Particularly Christians are, sh- are scared to share their faith. I love what Tina Fey said in 2018. She said, uh, speaking in 2018 is like walking in a minefield. <laughs> you never know who you're gonna offend, right? Christians are particularly sensitive and often withhold because they're afraid of rejection. But if you notice the context of these verses, look at in verses 11 and 12, he says, blessed are you, some will mock you, some will revile you, but then look at 16. Some will see your good works, that final verse, some will see your good works and they'll glorify your father in heaven. So the results vary. In being the salt of the earth, in being the light of the world, in sharing our faith as Christians, the results will vary. 
But rejection might be one of those results because the results are not up to you. The results of sharing, the results of living your life as a faithful Christian, as one who is dedicated to the Lord, the results will vary and it might often include rejection. And here's the truth. This is what I want you to understand. Rejection does not mean you've failed. Rejection does not equal failure. What do I mean by that? When you share about Jesus, when you talk about Jesus and someone rejects you, someone mocks you, someone insults you, it doesn't mean that you've necessarily failed. We think you failed. It actually might mean, and this is what I want to talk to you about today, that you're in the company of the prophets. Notice what he says in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says. Your reward is great in heaven. And he basically says this. They did the same thing to the prophets. The prophets. It might mean if you were rejected that you haven't failed, but maybe that you're in the company of prophets. Who are the prophets? Do you know much about them? You know, a lot of people skip over these books in your Bible. If you're in Matthew, it's just the books right before it, right in this little section in the Old Testament before Matthew, leading into the New Testament, there's these books called the prophetic books. These prophets were interesting men and women. They were, their word was given to the people of Israel in history. So, you know, your Old Testament, it's not a, in chronological order. It's not like Genesis, and then it all goes all the way to Malachi, the final book in the Old Testament, and it goes perfectly chronologically. Actually, the timeline of the prophets overlays on top of the old history books in your, new, in your Old Testament, Judges through Second Chronicles. These prophets were speaking to the people of God, Israel, during a particular time. And they were receiving word from God and their responsibility was to share it with the leadership and the people. These men and women were called, uh, as the Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament theologian, he says, they were God's human mouth. They were God's human mouth. So God, sometimes he would speak in a thunderous roar, but sometimes he often, often, often spoke through his prophets, his, his people who were his human mouth. And their purpose was to always call the people of Israel back to the word of God. A lot of us think prophets were future uh, tellers. They were fortune tellers that could, you know, understand the signs of the times. But actually, did you know that the majority of the prophetic literature in your Bible is not about the future? It's actually about the past. It's actually the, the people, uh, the, the prophets saying, hey, Israel, wake up. God has commanded us to do this in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. God has commanded us to do this. Come back to God. Come back to his word of what he has already said, and then you will find flourishing in life. That was the message of the prophets. And you might think, okay, if they did that, if they were called, as Israel was just kind of doing life as they pleased, walking as they wanted to walk, doing what they wanted to do, you might think, well, they were speaking God's word, so they were well-liked, right? They weren't. This meant because they were God's human mouthpiece, they were not received. Because, catch this, their word was a disturbance to the status quo of what Israel was doing. And the same thing speaks today. When we join the company of the prophets, our word will be a disturbance in the culture. Look at Jeremiah. God says this to Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He says this, from this day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent them all my servants, the prophets to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you, Jeremiah, God is saying to him, you shall speak all these words to them, but they won't listen to you. You shall call to them, 
but they will not answer you. Later, hundreds and hundreds of years later, Jesus, right before he, he goes to the cross, right before he's arrested, betrayed, crucified, and dies, he's looking over the city of Jerusalem to the people of Israel. And he says this in Matthew 23, oh, Jerusalem, he's lamenting. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen, beautiful image, gathers her, her, her brood under her wings and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. To be in the company of the prophets is to learn we might be rejected for all the right reasons. It's learning that a faithful life might look like a life that is mocked by some. A, a, a courageous life might look like a life that is reviled for the right Reasons. It's kind of timely, actually, to be looking at this passage about salt and light in context this weekend because of Martin Luther King weekend and his, the day that we celebrate his life being tomorrow. This man, out of whom numerous statues are made, a national holiday proclaims his goodness, he nevertheless was a man who was stricken. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was kicked down. He was imprisoned, ridiculed, spied on, manipulated, mocked, and yes, finally, tragically, he was assassinated. So on this weekend, we cannot pretend like the country that now celebrates him did not once revile him. He was in jail once in Birmingham, and he wrote, is really famous, you probably read it in high school, I pray you read it in high school, the letter from the Birmingham jail. In this document, which he wrote, interestingly, in the, margins of an old newspaper with one pencil. When you read it, reread it this weekend, it's worth it. When you realize that he wrote it with one pencil in the margins, I mean, the, the, the content that came out of it is just incredible. Listen to what he writes in this. It's very, very, sounds like the prophets. Listen, he says this in the letter from the Birmingham jail. The, the contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. What a line. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction of things as they are. Elsewhere, he's, he's famous for saying this, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. When I hear these words from Dr. King and consider the life he lived, which is different from the life we remember sometimes, I start to hear the prophetic books. I start to hear the echoes of the Old Testament. I want this morning for us to hear the prophets again. I want us for, to, to hear what their words said and ask our, this question, are we in their company? Are we the conscience of the state? Are we the agitators? Or are we, as Dr. King said, the arch supporters of the status quo? And to consider this, that Jesus is inviting us, his followers, into a prophetic life, into a disturbance of a life. What does it mean to be in the company of the prophets? Joining the company, it looks like this. Number one, an encounter with God. I've collected just like a ton of the prophetic writings. We don't have time to go through everything, but 
it also in, in reading uh, Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament theologian, and Abraham Joshua Heschel, just combining some of what the prophets sounded like, I want you to hear and understand this is what it would be like to be in their company. And the first thing when you read the prophets, every single prophet was marked by their encounter with God. Every prophet's life worked that way. Without the knowledge that God is with them and the power of God's presence with them, they had nothing to say and everything they say had no power in it. Likewise, as Christians, if we have no encounter with God, if we have no fellowship with his Holy Spirit, we will have nothing to offer the world of substance. This is why worship is so important. Let me just speak as a pastor of this church. I love you. Our our worship is not the warm-up to the sermon. When we worship, when the team is up here, and I know some of us, we come in late and we have stuff going on and everything like that. Do you understand that worship is not warm-up? Worship is the battle. Worship is the time where we invite God. Worship is the time where we redirect our hearts because when you're out there parking your car, your heart is not before God (laughs) all the time, right? When you're getting your kids together, like your heart is not right before God all the time. And worship, it redirects your heart to God. Worship brings you before God and you go, man, God, stir my heart up, right? Remind me of these truths that we sing about. When we worship, we are doing important work. I like to say we're kind of logging on to the live stream of heaven, (laughs) We're like dialing in. We're like going, man, God, what are you up to? And for us to treat it as some lackadaisical thing that we just, oh, I kind of will sing this song, critique this song, critique these lyrics, critique the musicians, whatever, this millennial arms crossed, coffee in hand. Man, the prophets would be like, what are you doing? To the prophets, an encounter with God is everything. Without a filling up of the Holy Spirit, what do you have to say? what What you have to say really does not matter. At the end of the day, the word of God has to rest on you. The the truth of God has to indwell within you. That's why every the prophets, when they open up their books, like Nahum 1.1, you'll read these strange phrases. Like it says, the oracle of God came to Nahum. And you're like, the oracle, what is that? Sounds a little new agey. It's actually, it's a Hebrew word that can be translated as word, oracle, message, or it's burden actually. It's actually the word for burden the prophets were burdened by the word of God because it disturbed their life. We critique it. We sit back with it. The prophets ingested it. The prophets drank of it. The prophets were overwhelmed by it. I wonder, is that your heart in worship? Is that your heart in church? Let me ask you this question. Does your relationship with God, your faith, does it affect your temperament? Do you know what I mean by that? Does it affect and change the way that you relate to the world? Or do you just kind of come in and come out? Or do you just kind of like go to group, your midweek group, you leave midweek group. You go to church, you leave church. Talk to some people, get socially anxious, then leave. Or does it affect your temperament, how you feel about the world, how you feel about your neighbor, your spouse, your children? Man, when we leave worship, our temperament should change. It should lead us to the second thing prophets are famous for, which is this great sensitivity to evil. (laughs) They were, the prophets, because they had a huge vision of the holy God and were burdened by the word of God, evil to them was a disaster. Evil to them was not like, that's just the way the world works. No, 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 no. It was an offense to God, a vandalization of his world. 
a vandalization of his good world. God had built in their mind this beautiful house and humanity was crashing in the windows, breaking in and rummaging through, stealing everything that was God's and using it for their own advantage. It was a vandalization. Look at what Abraham Joshua Heschel says in his book, The Prophets. He says this, man's sense of injustice is a poor analogy to God's sense of injustice. We do that all the time. We compare our, in, our sense of injustice to God's all the time. He says it's so poor. The exploitation of the poor is to us a misdemeanor. To God, it is a disaster. Our reaction is disapproval. God's reaction is something no language can convey. Are the evils in this world okay to you? Or are you burdened by them? You might be in the company of the prophets. Have you ever been told you're too sensitive? Have you ever been told what's the big deal? Oh, you might be in the company of the prophets. If you're encountering with God and you see injustice and it breaks your heart, you see wickedness and evil and it breaks your heart, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. They did the same thing to the prophets. Strangely, if, you're, if you have this encounter with God in the sensitivity evil, you also have to understand this about a prophetic life and all the prophets lived this way. Number three, they lived a life of loneliness and misery. <laughs> it's weird, but some of you have felt this. Like you're in your workplace as, your only, as the only Christian. In your family, you're the only person who really believes in Jesus. You're the only salt of the earth or the light of the world in your family. You're the only salt of the earth on your campus. Only salt of the earth or light of the world within your company. And to be in the company of prophets is to actually realize you might be a little bit alone. When you read the prophets, they're kind of moody guys. <laughs> they're wandering around. Sometimes they're poor. They've given their money away. They're preaching. They're yelling. They're crying. Uh, people don't really want to be their friends. <laughs> this isn't to say that we Christians are to be constantly in lament. It's just to warn us that a Christian life will not always fit within the cultural confines of American life. It just won't. And oftentimes I think Christians expect to be people who fit in. And then when they're not, they're disappointed and they wonder why. And we would do well to read the prophets. When Jesus says, you'll be in their company if you're salt and light of the earth, it might mean we're a little lonely. Look at what A.W. Tozer says. The masses are always wrong. <laughs> in every generation, the number of the righteous is small. Be sure that you are among them. Where did we ever get the theology or the philosophy that this would be a popular movement? Everything in scripture would tell us contrary to that. We want to be relevant. The gospel wants us to be faithful. We want to be cool. The prophets want us to declare God's word to this world. Fourthly, we we're gonna have a level of spiritual integrity. What do I mean by this? Spiritual integrity is what we say when we say you practice what you preach. Spiritual integrity is you believe this, you do that. It's that simple. The prophets saw this as one of the most important things God's people could do. To the prophets, the external posturing of religious affections is sickening. To them, the showing off of prayer and worship was disgusting. 
Sacrifices to animals as they did in the Old Testament without a humble heart is a disgrace. Singing praises to God while taking advantage of the poor is an offense. Worship without justice is incongruent. The prophets didn't understand this. And so they would, they would decry things like this. Look at Jeremiah 7. Here, here's here's one of some of the, when the prophets go off on Israel. Look at this. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery? This is, again, Jeremiah being God's human mouth. So this is God speaking through Jeremiah. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear far, falsely, make offerings to Baal, a false god, and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. That was the worship song of Israel. He's like, you're gonna live this way and then come into the temple and just say, we're delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. That might sound familiar to you if you've read that passage where Jesus goes in the temple and starts turning over tables. It's like crazy. He gets like livid. And he says, what is this, a den of robbers? That's a hyperlink back to Jeremiah 7, saying nothing has changed, Israel. Like you still go on doing anything you want to do and then you come in this life and you sing your favorite worship song. The, The question the prophets have for us is, are my beliefs congruent with my behavior? Are my beliefs congruent with my behavior? This is why we serve Del Mar Hill here, by the way. This is, this is an opportunity for us when we give to Del Mar, it's an opportunity to us to say, we don't divorce worship in this space with the justice in this space. We give and we support those who are in poverty here and we bless the staff here and we love, we bring donuts every Friday to the staff. We're bringing tacos every quarter to the staff. Why are we blessing this? Because our beliefs have to be congruent with with what we say we believe, right? With our behavior. And, And so worship and justice are just two hands on the same body to the prophets. There is spiritual integrity. Where in your life are your beliefs maybe incongruent with your behavior? This is why, too, the prophets, and this is a confusing part. People read the prophets and they they may not like it. There's this emphasis on the small things, number five. And that's because the spiritual integrity in number four is so important to them. Like what you do matters, everything of what you do. To the prophets, there are no small things. The small things are actually big things to the prophets. Like when you read some of these passages in parentheses, like I said, I don't have time to go through all these. They're in your notes. Look at them at home. In some of those passages in the parentheses, the prophets are decrying cutting corners in business. They're speaking against drinking too much, sexual, the sexual practices of businessmen and businesswomen, how children treat their parents, how men look at women and how women look at men. We, we think, well, maybe these are small things. The prophets, they were like, no, 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 no. This has to do with spiritual integrity of the person. To be in the company of the prophets is to actually understand the small things in your life as a big thing. Like we deem things political issues, the prophets deem them as spiritual. We make excuses like that was a white lie. The prophets see a heart divided. We judge those who don't believe what we believe and the prophets see a hypocrite. We spend our money and justify our spending. The prophets see the beginning of the seed of greed. We don't think God cares what we do with our bodies in the bedroom, seeing our sex life as something separate, free to do whatever we want. The prophet sees a temple desecrated. 
We see a hip church with cool music, but no justice, and the prophet sees an abomination. We critique sermons, like this one right now, you're critiquing it. (laughs) Like we critique sermons. The prophet mourns over a hard heart that's not receiving God's word. Like, no matter, like, my wife and I have had to change this a little bit because as a pastor, you, you're, a, you're the best critiquer of sermons. It's terrible. It's really bad. It's really bad. Like, I leave sermons, and my wife and I used to always ask uh, years ago when we were first married, uh, what'd you think? It doesn't really matter I came to realize what I thought. Who cares? The internet doesn't, definitely. My wife didn't, <laughs> I found out. wrong, that's not the right question. What did you think? No, the the question we've changed is what must we do? We just heard the word of God. Albeit through a good preacher or a bad preacher, it was heard. What must we do? It really doesn't matter what you think. Can I free you for this morning? (laughs) (laughs) The prophets include, number six, explosive eternal language. To the prophets, sin must be called precisely what it is, sin. And so they use really dramatic imagery and language. But here's the thing. While it is explosive language, there's times you read it, you go, whoa. Nobody would ever say that in church. It's true. (laughs) Uh, It's really, really explosive language. However, it is eternal. It has behind it the weight of the righteousness and holiness of God. It has behind it the word It has behind it the spirit of God ushering it in. They're not historic words. They're actually eternal words that will never pass away because again, they're God's. They're God's human mouth. It's like uh, Isaiah says, this isn't in your notes, but it says, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He's made me like a polished arrow. That's what Isaiah says about his own words. He's like, it, it's going to hurt. It's going to be explosive. You see, the problem today, though, is, is, is you're, you probably are catching on to this already. We have the explosive language without the eternal, right? That's what Twitter is. That's what a Christian witness is generally online. Explosive language without the eternal weight behind it. The prophets would wait to speak sometimes. The prophets would allow the word to sit. They were not modest people. Like Jesus was not a modest person. The prophets, throw in Martin Luther King Jr., these were not nice people. Now, I use that word particularly. They were kind, compassionate, but you don't stone, beat, and kill nice people. They had an explosive, they had had a confidence, not in themselves, a confidence that they knew God. Jeremiah says this, and I was reading it earlier this week, right? He says, God says to him, Let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me. You should still boast, though. (laughs) There's that holy boasting. But you see, in this day and age, we're explosive without the eternal weight. Number seven, there's also a radical but simple compassion. Abraham Heschel says, a prophet is a person who suffers the harm done to others. This is an important part. When you think about the explosive language, you have to understand the prophets were not the people on the outside pointing in. They were on the inside pointing in. 
to the prophets. It was, a, it was an abomination what Israel was doing, not because they were not an Israelite, but because they were an Israelite. Compassion, that word, it literally means to suffer with. Did you know that? When you're showing compassion to your friend, it's to suffer alongside. And the, the prophets did this in actually kind of dramatic, almost like performance arty ways. Like if you read the story of Hosea, he marries a prostitute. He marries a prostitute to image to Israel how they are messing around with false gods and foreign nations. Okay, Ezekiel does weird stuff through his life. He's doing all this weird stuff. Why, why are they doing this? It's to image to the people of Israel that something dramatic is going on and they are a part of it. You see, that's very key. Christians often want to excuse themselves from the culture and demonize the world. When Jesus says, you're in the world, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You are not separated from the world or the earth. You're not separated from the sins of America. You are not separate. You are not standing on the outside pointing towards all that is wrong from your high perch of righteousness. You're the lead repenter as a prophet. So the prophets did. They're just like, we all, we all got to repent. I'll go first. That's what they did. They suffered alongside and with the people. Christians today must do the same. Are we in our communities or are we on the outside pointing blame at our schools, colleges, workplaces? I hear it all the time. It sickens me. Man, Christians, we have to take the first responsibility of the sin that's being committed in this country and repent before God and say, man, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. God, transform us. Give us your grace. Give us your mercy. That's why we come to communion. You don't come to communion. You don't come to worship in response and go, seems like I'm doing everything right. No, man, I, our prayer is that after, after the word of God is preached and the worship is going, man, we are broken before God. And we just say, we just need his mercy. All of this included is finally what I mentioned at the start, a, a, a sense of rejection. Number eight, for the right reasons. You see, if you look at your notes in your, in your, in your, um, and you can see all eight of them, you'll notice something important. Because I think rejection, when it's taken by itself, is dangerous. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Like Christians are really bad at discerning being rejected for the right reasons. We often play the martyrdom complex. We often say, oh, nobody that likes me or people hate me. And oftentimes people don't like you because you're a jerk or people don't like you because you have the explosive language without the eternal stuff. Here's what I wanna help you see. Look at the first four and the second four in your notes if you can see them. If you have the second half, the rejection, let's say, let's say you have the explosive language, even the compassion. At some level, if you just have that first half without the, or the second half, without the first half, without the encounter with God, without the sensitivity to evil, without the spiritual integrity, your, your, your witness will not be prophetic. It won't. It'll be pathetic. <laughs> it, it will, because you'll just, you'll wanna just, get yourself out there. You want to be like, no, I'm really preaching the word of God. I'm standing by the truth. I'm this, but you have no encounter with God. You have no sensitivity to the own sin in your own life. You will not be in the company of prophets. But likewise, if you have just the first half, you're going to be that light under the basket. It's just all about you, your encounter with God, 
super spiritual person. You know, you, you, you see everything, you're like sensitive to everything of the evil out there, but you don't engage with the community out there. You don't have the compassion. You don't, you're, you're afraid of being rejected. You're gonna be that light that Jesus says is hidden under a basket. You're gonna be a salt without its taste. You're gonna be like, man, it's, it's gonna not be tasty enough. But I would say if you just have a little bit from each of those first four, second four, I mean, if you've got something going on in your life where God is stirring these things in you that I'm preaching to you, rejoice and be glad. Friends, you're flourishing, you're headed in the right direction. Be encouraged this morning. If you're rejected and you have this encounter with God, if you've got just a little bit from each of those sections and just some of your life smells a little bit like the prophets, man, be encouraged because you are in the company of the prophets. And rejection, it might be there, but also glorification might be there as well. I wanna share with you this really short story I heard. Um, We're gonna have a little radio time, okay? Uh, Have you ever listened to This American Life on NPR? Years ago, it's a radio show. They shared this story. And I want you to listen to this story, gather around the radio kind of old school style, right? Get, Get in close, we'll dim the lights. It's about three minutes long. I just want you to listen to this and reflect on a prophetic life. Let's um, play that clip. Well, it all began at, at Christmas when my daughter was four years old. And um, it was the first time that she had ever asked about what, it, what, what did this holiday mean? And so I, I explained to her that this was celebrating the birth of, uh, of Jesus. And she wanted to know more about that. And we went out and bought a kid's Bible and had these readings at night. She loved them, wanted to know everything about Jesus. Um, so we read a lot about his birth and about his teaching. And um, she would ask constantly what that, what that phrase was. And I would explain to her that it was do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we would talk about those old words and what that all meant, you know. Um, And then one day we were driving past uh, a big church and out front was an enormous crucifix. She said, who is that? And I guess I'd never really told that part of the story. So I had this sort of, yeah, oh, well, that's that's Jesus. And I forgot to tell you the ending. Yeah, well, you know, um, he, he ran afoul of the Roman uh, government. You know, this message that he had was so radical and unnerving to the prevailing authorities at the time that they had to kill him. They, they came to the conclusion that he would have to die. That message was too troublesome. about a month later after that Christmas, we'd gone through the whole whole story of what Christmas meant, and, and it was mid-January, and her preschool uh, celebrates the same holidays as the local schools, so Martin Luther King Day was off, and uh, so I knocked off work that day, and I decided we'd play, and I'd take her out to lunch, and uh, we were sitting in there, and right on the table where we happened to plop down was the art section of the local newspaper. And there, big as life, was a huge drawing by, by like a 10-year-old kid in the local schools of Martin Luther King. And uh, she said, who's that? And I said, well, as it happens, that's Martin Luther King. And he's why you're not in school today. 
So we're celebrating his, his birthday. This is the day we celebrate his life. And uh, she said, so who was he? I said, well, he was, a, he was a preacher. And she looks up at me and goes, for Jesus? And I said, yeah, yeah, actually he was. But, um, but there, was, there was another thing that he was really famous for, which is that um, he had a message. You know, and you're trying to say this to a four-year-old. It's very, you know, this is the first time they ever hear anything. So you're just very careful about how you phrase everything. So, so I said, you know, uh, well, yeah, he, he was a preacher and he, he had a message. She said, what was his message? I said, well, he said that you should treat everybody the same no matter what they look like. She thought about that for a minute. And she said, well, that's what Jesus said. And I said, yeah, I guess it is. You know, I never thought of it that way, but yeah. And that is sort of like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And uh, she thought for a minute and looked up at me and said, did they kill him too? I started the sermon by telling you the hard truth that being salt and light this, in this world might mean rejection, but that the good news is that rejection doesn't mean you've failed. And right now you might be thinking, why would I want any of this? Why would I want to be in the company of the prophets if it's going to mean insults, mockings? What is there to be glad about? Because Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. This is why we are to be glad. The rejection of God's people leads to the redemption of all people. In Jesus, we see that it was through his rejection that God brought redemption. As we live in the company of the prophets, we are going to be well aware this might be our story too. You you might get shut down at work. You might get made fun of, mocked by family members, ignored by friends, ridiculed online. And at the same time, you might find grace. Why? Because you'll find Jesus. Jesus was not one of the prophets, but the one whom all prophets spoke of, He was the crescendo to the symphony. And I often think of Jesus as a young Jewish boy growing up and reading the Old Testament. I think about him training to be a rabbi and reading the prophetic literature. I think about him looking at Isaiah and thinking, this is my vocation. I think about him reading Jeremiah and saying, this is why I've come. You see, he knew what was coming. He knew these prophets ultimately did not carry a message about justice or a message about worship. They brought a message about a man who was God. In each book, a resounding consistency is about the declaring of the Messiah. And all the great prophets, for all the greatness that they are, everyone from Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel, yeah, maybe even to Martin Luther King, these prophets will never save us. These prophets simply point to the one who saves. We don't follow prophets. We don't worship them. All of them had several moral failings. My goodness, Martin Luther King, certainly. But God used the prophets the same way he will use you in spite of you. As a grace across your sin, 
because Jesus is the one who lives in you. These were men and women like you and me who were morally bankrupt, and yet they picked up their cross. They rejoiced in their sufferings. They counted the cost, all the things Jesus asked human beings to do, and therefore their lives, MLKs included, is simply a signpost pointing us to the Messiah. It looks so much like Jesus. It sounds so much like Jesus. Does your life exist in that way? Are you in their company? Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. You are not just a brave man or a woman. You are not someone who's just endured suffering. No, instead, your life is so much more. Your life is bearing the cross. Your life is showing the glory of Jesus in your sufferings, in your ridiculing. You are living in the company of the prophets. Their lives and potentially yours are compelling, not for any other reason, except they image Jesus. He's the one we worship. And so let's worship him together. Let me pray. God, we need you. You are the ultimate one. You're the one the prophets spoke of. You are the one, in spite of all of our moral failings, you are the one who picks us up. You are the one who restores us. God, you are the good one. You are the glorious one. And Father, we ask as we sing to you, you would grace us with your presence. God, could we encounter you now? God, we, we ask that you would be high and lifted up. God, that our lives would be in the company of the prophets in the sense that it would point to you, Jesus. God, we need you. God, we're, we're asking for an encounter with you as we worship and as we partake in communion. We pray this in Jesus' name.